If you have um, are visiting with us today for the first time, I just highly encourage you to, to listen to today's sermon and then go listen to the other ones. Uh, because you have jumped in in the midst of a very... Um, a topic that I would say is very sensitive in our culture today, and what I'm talking about today is even more highly sensitive, and I would say charged uh, in our society today. And um, and so don't uh, judge this sermon, or don't judge what I say today simply by what I say today, but what I've been saying for the last three or four weeks. I encourage you to go online and listen. Uh, but today, we are going to deal with this issue of how do we preach Christ to those that simply don't want to hear? Um, and and uh, I hope to shed some light on that. And in order to do so, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24. Paul writes, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, if you don't come by the power of your Spirit and apply your word to our hearts, we are people without hope. Lord Jesus, I depend completely upon you. I depend upon your Spirit. Come, sweet Holy Spirit, and speak words of truth and grace to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for men like Paul and others that... We're faithful to preach Christ in the midst of a culture that hated Christ. And God, I just pray that we would be a body, that we would be your mouthpiece in this city that preaches Christ and Him crucified, but does it with tremendous integrity as men and women who display that grace is everything to us. Lord Jesus, would you come? We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My 21-year-old daughter, Amy Catherine, uh, gave me the, the, really the, the perfect structure and opening for this sermon this morning. She called me, I think it was Monday evening, and said, Dad, I, I, I'm just exasperated. And I didn't know who else to call but you. I knew you would understand that. And I said, all right, well, tell me what's going on. And uh, she's a senior at Mississippi State and taking introduction to uh, gender studies. And she said, Dad, my my teacher has a very obvious, um, overt, and even hostile agenda. It's, it's It's a homosexual agenda. It's a liberal agenda. And, um, and yet, those in my class that see themselves as Christians uh, today pulled their Bibles out and just started attacking her. And in the middle of class, she said, please put away your Bibles. We're just going to stick to science in this class. And Amy Catherine was like, Dad, what do I do? I feel for my teacher, in a sense who's simply trying to to teach her class, no doubt with an agenda, but I also feel for my friends. And as I thought about that, I I knew exactly what was going on. Um, I I knew that this class was polarized by this very electrifying and and, and divisive um, topic of homosexuality and Christianity. 
And they were colliding and and coming to a head in that classroom. And I knew that what the teacher was doing is she was, as the authority figure in the room, saying, look, I'm marginalized in every other context, but I'm not going to be marginalized in my classroom. And so those Christian students were feeling marginalized, exactly what she feels in practically every other context that she probably lives in. And I, don't, I couldn't think of a better illustration to describe the world in which we live today. During a recent forum called Conservative Christianity After the Christian Right, Tim Keller was making the point that today we live in a highly polarized society, that the, the middle uh, has really vanished, and now we have more secular and more Christian, but we've lost our middle, he writes. The number of the devout people in the country is increasing as well as the number of secular people. The big change is the erosion in the middle. It used to be that the devout and the mushy middle, and he describes the mushy middle as nominal Christians, people that would identify as Christians, people who would come to church sporadically, people who certainly respect the Bible and Christianity, that's the mushy middle. The devout and the mushy middle together was a supermajority of people who just created a kind of Christian-y sort of culture. So you took those who were truly conservative Christians and those who were friends of Christianity, the mushy middle, and you had, they were really the huge majority in this country. But then he says this, the mushy middle used to be more identified with the devout, now it's more identified with the secular. So the church is more polarized and marginalized over here in the corner, and the the secular religious and the secular secular, if you will, non-religious, are over here together in the same camp. And whereas that is new for Christianity in America, it is nothing new to the church. In fact, that is typical Christianity if you look throughout history. Uh, Christians have typically been the minority and alone, <laughs> not. Not many friends to the church, but the the culture is typically, if you read history, very hostile to Christianity. And so as we come to the Scriptures, and it was certainly that way in Paul's day, as we come to the Scriptures, we need to understand that the Scriptures are addressing the culture in which we live. Uh, And we see it right here. For Jews demand signs, Paul says. Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. There's the polarization. Jews over here, the the liberal religious over here, Greeks or Gentiles over here, thinking people, intellectual people, saying, give me wisdom, that's a bunch of folly, the Christianity stuff's a bunch of folly, then you have the church. And yet it's within this context that Paul is preaching and teaching throughout uh, his, his letter to the church in Corinth, And he is telling us how we are to respond in a highly secular and a highly religiously liberal culture. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. In other words, Christians don't get out of the world. I'm not telling you don't associate with those uh, who are in the world and sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to get out of the world. And you remember Jesus' prayer in John 
God, Father, I pray, don't take them out of the world. Just keep the world from getting within them. That's really what Jesus was saying. And then in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now, why would Paul need to list all the sexual sins of his day? It's because those in his day were seeking to normalize what God had clearly condemned. Just like today. And he was doing so not for the world, but for the church. Why? Because the church began to normalize what God clearly condemned. Is that not where we are today? I have to confess, I've spent a whole lot of time on this sermon, and I've been somewhat nervous about this. And and, if the thought hit me today, I thought, I'm feeling uncomfortable preaching the truth of the clear truth of God's word. That says something definitely about me, maybe. Insecurity, maybe. But also about our day. And also about our church. And probably also about downtown Memphis, Midtown, and beyond. So, in our highly sexualized world, how do we respond with the gospel? When those to whom we're seeking to to relate the gospel to don't want to hear us. And I'm going to say it must be a redemptive approach. The 1 Corinthians uh, 6 where Paul says, but such were some of you really defines it. The grace of Jesus Christ must be everything to you. Or you're going to have absolutely no positive impact on the world and those to whom you're trying to reach. So let's look at it. First of all, Paul calls us to a redemptive approach to others. Paul is calling us to a redemptive approach. You see, what Amy Catherine's professor is after is the same thing that every single one of us is is after, and that is namely redemption. God created all of us. Here's our story. Every person that's ever lived, God created all of us. To find our identity and to find redemption, if you will, in relationship with Him. Loving relationship of acceptance and delight. A father running to his children, a child running to his father, living in the submissive relationship, father, son, and daughter. And yet sin marred that image and that's what was destroyed. It wasn't just that we became sinners, but we became sinners to this extent that we said, you are not my identity anymore. I will find love and acceptance and justification somewhere and everywhere else but you. And so God responds by sending His Son... This word of the cross that Paul is referring to, this, this, this preaching Christ crucified... And what we see is that Christ crucified is the very grounds of our redemption in that God purchased us back by paying for our sins and giving us a righteous record to stand on. 
So that to become a Christian, we simply receive. We receive the righteousness of Christ. I claim His righteousness as my own. So that God is now not counting my sins against me, but He is declaring me righteous. And He's not counting my sins against me because He counted my sins against Christ and condemned Him in the flesh. That is the message of redemption and that is the way home. What that woman wants, what that professor wants, is a way home. And she has become convinced that her way home is to come out and to be who God made her to be. It's to come out and say, yes, this is who I am. And therefore, I will be happy and I will be fulfilled if I live consistently with who I was made to be. And anyone that would disagree is just seeking to repress me and persecute me. And then it becomes almost a justice issue. Well, she needs to hear that message. But so do those young Christians in Amy Catherine's classroom, and probably Amy too, Amy Catherine too. Why? Because one who is saying that Jesus is my identity, he's all I need, and he is who I have, does not need to feel self-righteous and to feel better and to come out swinging when they feel marginalized. And I think that's probably exactly what's going on. You see, those students, because they are students, are going to class and they're saying, this should be a context in which my teacher treats me fairly. And so, in a large degree, they are going to class assuming that they are not going to be marginalized and made to feel foolish for believing in Christianity. And so their righteousness, their identity, is probably Jesus, but something that's on a little peg, a little bit higher is, I want to be accepted for who I am as a Christian. And you see, Jesus commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those who spitefully use us, but how does he he expect us to do that? He expects us to do that by trusting that He is our ultimate identity. And therefore, we don't need the approval of anyone because we have the approval of God. And so I can love you because I don't need your acceptance to love you. I have the acceptance of Christ. I can debate you. I can can be your friend because my righteousness is not in staying away from those sinners out there, but I confess that I'm a sinner too, and the only righteousness I have is that which has been granted to me through the very finished work of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel needs to come to bear on the lives of these students and this teacher, if you were to ask me. The deceptiveness of sin is always pulling us away from believing Christ and Him crucified. The struggle of the Christian life is to live firmly in the hope that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nothing else is. And so, if that is true, let me just read um, something that I wrote for us this morning. The religious person wants his religious performance to love him. The workaholic wants his work to love him. 
and make him feel unconditionally accepted. The athlete wants his performance to love him. The hedonist wants his fun and pleasure to love him. The alcoholic wants his alcohol to love him. The sex addict wants his sex to love him. The codependent spouse wants their spouse to love them. The child wants their parent to love them. The food addict wants their food to love them. And on and on and on we can go. What we are demanding with the checkout person at the grocery store or the, um, the, the person driving next to us or our church is make us feel better about us. And what the gospel says is all you need is Jesus to do that. Because everything else will fail you. And the Christian says, yes, I have Jesus, and He is the one who makes me feel good. He is the one that gives me my identity. He is the one that makes me feel loved. So as we go to the world with the gospel, this is the thing that we're trying to discern. If you want to be effective in talking to other people, this is what you must discern. What is that person trusting, either in addition to the religious person, in addition to Christ, or to a non-religious person in place of Christ? And how can I expose in a loving way the fact that what they are seeking to trust will only lead them into despair and bondage and slavery? That's Christian evangelism, if you will. That is how we preach Christ crucified. We preach Him as the supreme source of life. And so as we talk to those around us, we have to decide whether it's a Christian friend genuinely struggling with a decision. We need to, de- we need to help them see what they are trusting, what they are fearing more than God and more than Christ. And then we are preaching Christ crucified to them. As we do this, I just want to take a little side note and talk to those who um, are really younger than myself, which is practically most people in this room um, this morning, the majority of people. Your culture is telling you that the God of your parents that preached His holiness and His justice and His condemnation is an irrelevant God. And therefore, Jesus is is a Savior who loves sinners, and He is. But here's the pressure on you today. The pressure on you today... See, there was very little pressure on... Uh, my generation in the church that, that I grew up in because we just isolated ourselves from the world and said, God is holy, you are sinful, so if you, you know, repent and come to us, come to church. But what your generation is saying is, Jesus is full of, of grace. And therefore, what he really wants is for us just to be happy. And so you struggle with, with pointing out sin in the lives of those around you because you, more than anything, don't want to be associated with that God of your parents who was always condemning sin. And yet what we see about Jesus in John 1 is He was not just full of grace, but He was, all, he was full of truth. 
And so really, both generations have gotten it wrong. (laughs) And we both need to repent and come to the middle. And the middle is Jesus. And the centrality of preaching Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified says, You are so sinful, God had to come down to die for you. Sin is real. And yet, you were so loved and accepted, God came down for you and died for you. Unbelievable. And that's the gospel. So how do we do that? Number two. Responding redemptively demands identifying what one is trusting. Now we're going to take, we're going to use um, the, the sin that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians um, 5 and 6 of homosexuality. And follow me, go through, because we're going to apply this to any other sin you want to apply it to. Uh, So whereas I'm isolating the sin in this PowerPoint presentation, it can apply to everything. We are going to apply it out from here. But the reason we need to understand the progression of sin is because every sin has a progression. And we need to know where a person is, what they are being enslaved by, what false thinking is is ruling them in that moment if we're going to love them well and be effective in bringing the gospel to their lives. And so here is where all sin starts. It starts in the desires. It starts in the heart. And for homosexuality, it starts with same-sex attraction. Um, I firmly believe that we can be born with a a desire for same-sex attraction. Attraction. Why? Because I am born with all kinds of um, desires that are, if I follow them, are unholy. And when I follow them, they are unholy. And so the whole nature-nurture argument, to me, is is a bit irrelevant um, because the Bible clearly states that we are born in sin. That's what Paul was saying in uh, Psalm 51. He said, "In, in sin my mother conceived me. In other words, this adultery and this murder that I committed was there from birth because that's how messed up I am. And every person in this room, that is the starting point of repentance, is to say, I was born in sin. My sin is not just this one-time kind of thing over here, isolated from who I really am. No, that's who you are. And so same-sex attraction. And then secondly... um, If it progresses, it progresses to homosexual activity. This could be... um, Oh, and before I go any further, I need to give absolute credit to somebody. I was having coffee with Park Morris, and he directed me to this. This, The first part of this PowerPoint is is purely stolen um, with permission from Jason McKnight at um, Grace Fellowship in... um, Kinston, North Carolina, and I actually emailed him and got permission, uh, so I have it in writing. I'm not plagiarizing here, and I, I, I'm sorry. I'm so glad I remembered that, because I was scared to death I was going to. But anyway, let's go back to homosexual activity. Um, Jason says um, that it progresses to, if it progresses, it progresses to homosexual activity, which uh, could just be just experimentation, um, And also, in the nature-nurture deal, are we born or do we learn it? I believe that those that struggle with this, and I have friends that do struggle with same-sex attraction, um, that it's both. And I think there's evidence for both of of, of those. That there are some who are just born, it's just part of, of their desire. Okay, But there are others, um, men who have been, or teens who have been sexually abused by men, and it, when that 
happens. It's an absolute, um, you know, it's so outside of God's character, sexual abuse, that basically this is, um, um, it will drive a man to be so confused that, that he's asking this question, am I a homosexual? And then the next progression would be homosexual orientation. This is just who I am. I'm accepting it. I'm receiving it. This is who I am. And then... On up, if it continues to progress, is a gay lifestyle. These are my friends. These are the people I hang with. This is the life I live. Um, And then it may just become one's agenda. Um, Let's legalize marriage and so forth. Now, we see this progression from struggling to celebrating and then live and let live to agenda. Now, you put any sin you want to at the bottom and go from there. Every sin begins with a desire. And if it's a desire for your neighbor's wife, and, you know, then there's some flirtation, uh, a little activity, um, and then, you know, to the point that, you know, I married the wrong person, and this is God's will for me, and therefore it is my orientation to be married to this person. We've seen that. And therefore, I'm done with the church, I'm done with anybody that disagrees with me, and now here's my lifestyle. And I don't know if we want to legalize it. I don't know that I've seen people go that far. But, um, but you just put in any, any sin in here. Greed. Um, how does a person go from, you know, being covetous to embezzling money or becoming a thief? The desire is there. I want what I don't have. And therefore, I begin to kind of dabble with it. And then I I, I find friends that are going to affirm me in this. And then it becomes my lifestyle um, and so forth. I think any and every sin can go there. Now, where do we go from here? How do we respond redemptively to someone in this progression? Number one. How do we respond to same-sex attraction? Not by condemnation, but by saying, I'm a fellow struggler. If you look at... If you look at Romans 7, what you see is Paul condemning sin, but saying, I'm a a struggler. You remember this? He said, when I wake up in the morning, I want to do what's right. But what? I find that I do the very thing that I set out not to do. So when we talk to those um, who are friends, when we talk to those that we are work with, when we talk to any other sinner, any other human being, therefore, we need to come to them and believe that I'm a fellow struggler with you, and we must communicate that to them. Secondly, we have to confess that we're not just a fellow struggler, we are fellow sinners. If you look at Paul in his life, he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 15, he said, um, I am the least of the apostles. So he's not just saying all the apostles sin. He's saying I'm the worst of even all the apostles. We're all a bunch of sinners. And then he gets to the end of his life, really, and um, in... Um, uh, where is it? First Timothy 1.15, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I think the biggest mistake we make as Christians in our, our conversation with the world is we talk about sin in the past tense. 
And what that is telling them is, well, if you just come to Christ, then you'll stop sinning like me. The best thing you can do is confess your sin to an unbeliever and let them know for sure that I'm not just a struggler, I'm a sinner like you. The problem is, I think most Christians can't do that because their identity is not ultimately in Christ, but in what they feel like they must do to be in Christ. But grace is free because Jesus paid that price. And then next, with someone who is saying, this is just who I am. I'm giving in and I'm giving up. This is who I am. You can say, even say, you know what, I relate to that. But here's the crazy thing. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Do you feel like a new creation today? I don't much of the time, most of the time. But you know what I have to do? I have to, say, I have to stand on what God says is true about me. I am a new creation. And I struggle, and I'm a struggling sinner, but one day, someday, the struggle will be over. This is my identity. You you see, here's what we've done in, in the church. We've said to those homosexuals over there, well, if you would just become heterosexual. Really? I mean, we're just trading one idolatry for another if we think that being heterosexual is the reason God loves us. What we need to say is, look, you can become heterosexual and you still need Jesus just as bad. (laughs) And so, our identity, however, is I am a new creation in Christ. All of this is from God. I love that. All of this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The identity is a new creation. And then, fourthly, the gay lifestyle. This is where it gets hard. The last two is where it gets hard. And I want to present a note of caution. I have friends, and I've had friends, um, that are here. And I want you to know, probably, there's two things that I would say we need to do. Number one is pray. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because it's only when we're poor in spirit that we can look up and receive Him. We need to pray that our friends will, will... get to the point that they're poor in spirit and therefore need Jesus. Because they're full of themselves. Whether it's they're caught in adultery, they're caught in pornography, they're caught in um, addiction, they're caught in their materialism, whatever it is, they are caught up with their idol and they're full of themselves and not Christ. And so we need to be praying fervently that they come to Jesus, that they get to a point of absolute despair, that, they, that, that their idol does not uh, satisfy them. And then the second thing we must do is we must love them. Be in the world, but not of the world. Um, I can think of a couple of people in my life that struggled with a whole host of sins. uh, Homosexuality, adultery, 
And those that I stayed in there with, those that I kept loving, those that I kept meeting, those that I, I, I kept showing that, hey, I love you, they knew I didn't approve of their sin. And they weren't even asking me to. Those were the ones that picked up the phone and called when they got to the point of despair. And if I had cut them off, they would never have called me. You can stand for what is true and right and still love someone who is headlong into sin. And then lastly, um, and this is tough, but we just have to say what is true. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. What we have to do in the world that we're in is we have to hold up truth and we have to do so in a way that exhibits we really love. And you can't fake that. And so church, we have to be filled up with Jesus. We have to be constantly walking in repentance and faith. We have to be constantly deconstructing the things that we are longing for in our lives to replace Jesus with. If I just had this, look at your prayer life. What are you praying for most fervently? That's probably and possibly the thing that you need to let go. Because what we're saying so much is this. If I get it, then I don't have to trust Jesus anymore. And that's what our soul is really crying out for. So friends, we have to be in a point of active repentance ourselves. So that when we go to the world, they'll know we really believe we're sinners. But then we have to fill up on the love of Jesus so we can say, but Jesus is my everything. And the question I put before the church today, is Jesus your everything? If He's not, pray that He will be. (laughs) Come to Him and confess your sin, and He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin And cleanse you from all unrighteousness, friend. Luke 15, there's a way home for the one who's wandered the farthest. The Father's waiting. Would you come home to Him? And then would you invite your friends and your neighbors and your family to come home too? Because there's only one home. Jesus is the only one who's going to make you feel at home. Because He is our home. May we take that gospel, a gospel we need, to the world that needs it too. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for um, your grace in Christ. And we pray that you would make us empty of self, full of Jesus, that we might overflow to someone around us. Oh God, I pray that we would not be a point of contention in this world, but we would be a point of love so that our neighbors would have to deal directly with Jesus and not just our insecurity. Lord Jesus, move us out of the way and make your fame grow large. And may this world come to know you for the glory of Christ and for the good of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.